This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Alice McDermott, author of the novel Absolution. I'm not interested in this innocent 23-year-old wandering through the streets of Saigon and wondering what her husband's doing. I'm interested in the 80-year-old who looks back at herself as a 23-year-old and says, I didn't even know. We'll be back with Alice McDermott after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is how did we get to 9,000 hours is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, Well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is novelist Alice McDermott, who is the author of nine books of fiction and one craft book called What About the Baby? Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction. Her novel Charming Billy won the National Book Award, and her books That Night at Weddings and Wakes and After This were all finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. Her stories and essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the New Yorker, among other publications. She lives outside of Washington, D.C., 
Her new novel, Absolution, brings the American wives who were living in Vietnam in the 1960s to the forefront. The story is told from the perspective of two women decades after the Vietnam War conversing through letters. The main character, Trisha, was a newlywed living in Saigon in 1963, married to an intelligence officer. She befriends Charlene, a corporate wife with three children, who seeks to do good for the people of Vietnam. Charlene's daughter, Rainey, who was very young when they were all living in Saigon, is writing letters with Trisha after discovering a mutual acquaintance. At the heart of absolution are questions of loyalty and obligation, alongside the quest to determine what is the right thing to do amidst a broken world. We began with me asking Alice McDermott this question. So I guess I, I want to start off by just asking you about the inspiration for absolution. It's such a, a book, not that your other books aren't, but it's so rich and, and, and tied to setting. And it's such a different mm-hmm. setting than some of your other books. So I'm curious what was bubbling inside of you that this was the story you wanted to tell. I think of this novel as sort of having um, having two seeds, and one goes way, way back um, to my time as an undergraduate when I first read Graham Greene's The Quiet American. Um, and so this would have been, you know, Vietnam was, was still very much um, a mess uh, before the fall of Saigon. Um, and I remember reading The Quiet American for the first time and being just amazed at how prescient Green was about the political situation in Vietnam. The book came out in 55 or 56, and he nailed it. He nailed all of America's missteps and hubris and um, miscalculations. Um, Just even in the early 70s, it seemed quite astonishing. Um, I remember saying, you know, why didn't why didn't the president read this book? <laughs> you know, why didn't Lyndon Johnson read this book? Why didn't Kennedy read this book? Um, but I also recall knowing even then, and and certainly again, context is everything. This was also the early days of the women's movement, and I was a young 18, 19-year-old. So I remember thinking very clearly, yeah, he got the politics right. He saw the future, but he got the women so wrong. <laughs> um, and Green does that. It's This isn't the only book where he doesn't get the women right at all. But um, uh, the narrator in The Quiet American is, of course, it, the Vietnamese woman. They're doll-like and subservient. Um, and I mean, Green is too good a writer. There is a sense that um, that the Vietnamese characters know a lot more than the narrator thinks they know. But he had one scene um, where the narrator, who's a British, you know, hardened British journalist, um, smokes opium and, um, again, smart enough about the politics, a real cynic, though, a real Grand Green character. He glances over in one scene, and it's only about a page, and sees two American girls um, finishing their ice cream at a little milk bar in Saigon in the 1950s. Um, And he thinks about how clean they look and how passionless and uncomplicated their lives must be, especially compared to his passionate life. He said, you can't even think of the sweat of sex on them. Um, And even as a 19-year-old, I thought, no, no, no. (laughs) These are two young American women in Saigon, working in Saigon in the 1950s. These are really interesting characters. Um, These are these have to be women full of curiosity and passion. Um, so that, and I've read the book, I don't know how many times since it's, um, it's beautifully constructed. Um, and it's always interesting. And Green's Grand Green is always an interesting writer to go back to. But each time I thought, nah, <laughs> he never, he had no idea. And he certainly didn't see the women's movement coming. Um, and then, you know, years go by and I find myself living inside the beltway for almost 30 years now. And time and again, in, in all kinds of places, you know, social settings and church and school and political meetings, I would run into women who well could have been 
those 20 something girls in Saigon in the 1950s. Um, many of them wives, State Department wives, military wives, um, some of them young, you know, career girls before they got married. Um, and every time they would they would have wonderful stories to tell. You know, they they lived in so many interesting places, certainly not just Vietnam, but all over the world. And they had their own take on what their husbands were doing. Um, and every time I would run, I would think, see, he got it wrong. Um, so I had this impulse to um, let those women have their their novel. Um, so that was the sort of that's the long and long term answer of um, it was always, always I had this sense of these are very interesting characters who I haven't found in fiction yet. I know when we talked the first time, which was in 2015, you talked about um, like one of your goals is to bring out the voice of women in literature and as main characters. And that was something that you hadn't seen a lot and you have in, in your novels. And I find it interesting. This, this was something maybe simmering since you were 18 years old. So how did, and I don't know if there's an answer, but why was the time, the time when this story, when you started the story, why was it not five years ago or 10 years ago? Really interesting. Thank you. That's a great question. So that's the other part of the inspiration. Um, during one of these cocktail conversations here inside the Beltway, um, I was chatting with a woman, you know, sort of a generation older than I, um, whose husband was, um, and again, that it's one of these things, the details of the, the moment are a little bit unclear um, because it was just in the course of all kinds of other things happening and just chit-chat. Anyway, this woman mentioned um, being in Vietnam, I think it was in the early 60s. It may have been the late 50s. Um, no, it had to be the early 60s because um, she mentioned Barbie dolls. And she mentioned that there was um, that, that there was a fundraiser where they were selling little Aodais, the, the traditional Vietnamese uh, woman's clothing, Barbie size. And when she said that, I had this like, you know, momentary flashback that when I was a kid about that same time, I w was sent to, on a kind of play date um, with a girl who was not a friend of mine. She must have been somebody visiting or somebody my mother felt sorry for. Anyway, to go play Barbies together. And this girl had one of those outfits. And the only memory I didn't ask, I don't know where she got it. I don't know who brought it for. I don't know if she had a father or a brother who was, you know, for some reason there. I don't know how she got it. The kid wouldn't ask. I just remember how much I wanted one. I just thought it was just, it was beautiful. It was silk. It was unusual. It didn't come from the Barbie catalog. <laughs> so that was the, that was the thing that I maybe said to me, oh, it's time, you know, this weird you know, and I think maybe the very thing that that all novelists look for, that weird connection across time, the mystery of it, um, the the vagueness of it, because it was again, it was just a quick mention. And then I had this kind of flashback and, you know, my mother's not here anymore. So I couldn't I couldn't even ask her, do you remember when you sent me to play with this little girl? Do you know why she would have had this? So I really sat down with, I need an origin story for that outfit. And, and that may be a way into these women's lives. That's really all I knew about the story. Um, so that became the first chapter, the origin story of why would, uh, why would this uh, Barbie outdie end up um, on Long Island <laughs> in a little girl's Barbie wardrobe in the 1960s. And then all these years later, this woman says, oh, yeah, we had those. Um, I saw, you know, um, so it was just that wonderful, mysterious ripple through time that that brought me to the page. And and then see what see what. How did this happen? Well, you got to make it up because I don't know how it happened. It's so it's so interesting because I when we talked about the ninth hour, you had met someone after dinner. You were talking over wine who told you about 
the civil war and people replacing the wealthy people, paying people. So it seems like cocktail parties might play a role in your literary (laughs) life. Isn't that wonderful? What a great excuse. (laughs) Well, it's kind of, I mean, it's funny, but it's also kind of like deeper in the sense that when you are present in the world as a writer and you're thinking about your work, then a moment that would otherwise have passed you by, maybe, if you were a patent attorney, for instance, would <laughs> would attach to your brain in a certain way and start creating those tentacles to old memories that were you mm-hmm. not a writer in the world I don't know if they would captivate you and hold on to you. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it says something too um, about the inadvertent, um, you know, the, the, um, the, my friend Roger Roseblatt, who taught at Southampton College for, for years and years and years, would always tell his students, something will come to you, trust it, rather than pursue it. Um, you know, I, there's a wonderful line from Auden that I can't think of it precisely, but it's something like sleep and love um, reject a, a, a too determined pursuit, you know. Um, and, and there's something sort of lovely about that. Maybe it's, um, it's connected to the universe gives you the gift of a story, um, even if you haven't asked for it. Um, or just how inspiration works or how the use or, or muse works or exactly as you're saying, just being a writer in the world. Um, I, I'm, I'm, and maybe this is why I fear research so much, um, you know, self-conscious. Now I'm researching my novel um, because you're pursuing something rather than letting it come to you. Um, so, so there is that, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit magical, you know, um, that, that, that the idea of found art you know, found story, not something you went out that you were seeking, but something that has come to you. Um, Something will come to you. Yeah. And your novel, Mm -hmm. it's epistolary, but it's, it's like vaguely epistolary. It's, it's like you, Mm -hmm. it's, it's two narrators talking to each other, but it's not as literal as letters. There's a reference of it being letters. So I was curious about this structure. When you know when I when I set out to okay all I'm going to do is write an origin story um, of this bar, little Barbie doll outfit, um, and and yet I knew, um, given the time and place, given whoever would be the narrator of this origin story, um, that she would be a certain kind of woman. She would be a woman who came of age in the fifties um, and who enters this world. Um, before Vietnam becomes the morass that it became, just really on the edge. Um, so again, a woman of, you know, a gener- the generation that preceded mine. And I think I understood intuitively, again, only because I have known and, and observed such women, I knew this is not the kind of person who would insist on telling her own story. This is a woman who has been trained to be quiet, to be the background. These are the women on the periphery. These are the help meets to ambitious husbands. Um, and so I knew she had to be invited to tell her story. Um, and I think in my own life, at the, at the time that, that I was beginning to compose this novel, I had spent many years um, visiting my mother in her assisted living place where she was surrounded by very interesting people because it was here inside the Beltway who had had really interesting careers. Um, and this wasn't just gender related, um, women and men both, but I think it was age related. Um, they would not tell you their stories unless you asked them. You had to find the right question. And then they would they would tell you the most fascinating things and the most interesting things that had happened to them. And as they told the story, you could see them shed years. You could see they were reliving it, but you had to invite them to tell the story. They were smart enough. These were interesting, educated people. They were smart enough to know nobody wants some old person blabbing on about the way it used to be. 
You had to find the right question. And then you heard marvelous stories. So I knew intuitively that this narrator had to be invited to tell her story. So that was, I think, the sort of the foundational um, that this has to be. Um, someone has asked her, do you remember me? Do you remember my mother? Do you remember that time in our lives? The someone turns out to be a little girl who she knew. Um, but I knew, and I didn't want to start with the question. I wanted to start with the answer, the energy of the answer. But I knew this has to be a narrative that's invited because she's going to end up saying things she didn't know she was going to say. How does that change at all the, I don't know if it's as deep as craft, but how does that change the voice for you when you're writing that way? Like if you had not chosen it, do you think it would have been more difficult to write or she would have been revealed in a certain way? Like how did that then guide the actual storytelling? Um, you know, I think it, um, I think if I had attempted to tell this story more in the quiet American mode, um, sort of uh, uh, only looking back only over a couple of months, or even in an as-it-happens historical novel mode, um, if I had begun not with the voice, um, you know, let me tell you about what it was like in those days, but rather... I woke up one morning in 1963 and I did this and I did that. And, and I would have lost interest in it. Uh, <laughs> um, it what, what really intrigues me and, and interests me is the, and, and I think this has appeared in, in all my work, is that looking back through time, is that the way memory is a, is a mode of storytelling um, and that the story we tell two days after an event is an entirely different story that we tell 20 years after the event, because we have all the, the, the lens changes um, with all the subsequent events. Um, and that's what interests me. I, I was, I'm not interested in this innocent 23 year old wandering through the streets of Saigon and wondering what her husband's doing. I'm interested in the 80 year old who looks back at herself as a 23-year-old and says, I didn't even know he was in the CIA. <laughs> you know, all the things I didn't know. And I didn't know I was going to end up childless. And I didn't know, um, you know, all the events, some of them that I think she ends up telling inadvertently almost. That's what interests me as, as a storyteller. So I may have written the, the Barbie uh, origin story and then lost interest if it had been only um, an as-it-happens narrator. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. So your your main narrator, you do have two points of view. We have Trisha and then this young girl, Rainy, who she knew as a child, who is, they are communicating much later in life. And she's called Trisha by um, this woman she meets named Charlene, although she had never been called Trisha before. I think her name was Patricia. She had been called Patsy and a few other things in her previous life um, before coming to Saigon, but it kind of opens where she is at a cocktail party and she holds a baby that spits up all over her dress and she gets taken away <laughs> to, to get cleaned up. And the baby belongs to this woman, Charlene, who they become friends, although it's a little bit of a dubious friendship because it seems like Charlene, mm -hmm. Charlene's definitely pushy and always wanting something. Um, but the guise is to do something good. She's always interested in doing good for the people around her. But Charlene is also, she's popping pills, she's drinking alcohol, she has night terrors. And so part of the book is really Trisha observing this other character that ends up having so much mm -hmm. influence over her life. So I am curious about the character of, of Charlene. Charlene sort of burst into the novel. In, in, in much the same way she burst into the scene. Again, not something I can say I knew was going to happen before I started listening to Trisha's voice 
in some way, she said to me, you want to know the origin story of the barber? Okay, here it is. It's me. <laughs> you know, I did. I'm the one who got that Barbie outfit to Long Island, <laughs> you know, all those years later. <laughs> um, um, I'm the one. Uh, so again, she appeared um, and, and listening to Trisha and, and, and trying to get, a, a, you know, Trisha's voice right, how she would see her. Um, she's so different from Trisha. Trisha immediately dislikes her, but also is taken in by her. Um, you know, she's the cool girl. <laughs> and Trisha, you know, she's the cool girl in high school who everybody hates, but everybody wants to be friends with. And Trisha was the quiet, um, nerdy girl um, who is both dismayed and flattered by Charlene's attention um, and putty in her hands um, for the most part. Um, so I was just, she just sort of appeared and, um, and I didn't like her at first. Um, so I knew I had to give her more space and find out um, and not pull a Graham Green on her and say, this is all she is. She's just this shallow, you know, do-gooder. Um, the, no, she has to be, of course she has to be more complex than that. Um, so that was sort of my goal in the novel to find out how, who is she actually. In that first scene where she gets spit up on by Charlene's son is where she meets Rainey, the daughter, who has the Barbie doll. And when she goes to get changed at the home of this person who's having the party, she meets Lily, who is a Vietnamese woman who helps clean her up. And Lily works for the woman whose house they're at. Mm -hmm. And they become friends. And, And through that interaction, basically... Lily sees the little Barbie and just quickly sews up, sews up this traditional Vietnamese outfit. And that's where it begins. And then Charlene is kind of like saying to the, all the other women, Hey, this was Trisha's idea, which it wasn't. Um, but let's, let's give her all this credit and we're going to sell these for charity and use this for some inconsequential small good. I thought it was very curious because at other times when you're describing the, when uh, Trisha is really describing her life and she's describing the stockings and the makeup and the bobby pins and the curlers, it's, you can't help but think of her as Barbie. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and again, it's the, it's the, what was the reality for women at that time as well? Um, I know, I know some of the, the young readers um, at my publishing house went, they really questioned, can it be possible that, that women actually wore stockings in Saigon when it was 100 degrees to go to, to go to parties in the middle of the day? They put stockings on. Um, they wore girdles. They wore dress shields. They didn't even know what dress shields were. Um, and it seems astonishing looking back over the years that this was completely acceptable. This is what, you know, Hey, these were women who couldn't get credit cards except in their husbands' names. How about that? You know, um, these were women who were trained from their earliest days to be helpmeets, to be um, the subordinates and the behind-the-scene person for some man. Um, so, yeah, so that that whole um, to to the modern eye and to young women. Um, now in 2023, uh, it seems astonishing, but it was it was the context of this experience. Um, so the, in some ways, they were all Barbies. I mean, uh, uh, Charlene, for all her efforts to do good and her determination, um, uh, is also just catty as can be about clothes, <laughs> you know, and what other women are wearing. Um, it's because that that was your armor. That's that was your role um, to look nice. If you had a run in your stocking, it didn't just mean that your stocking ran. It meant that you don't care about your husband, that you're willing to look bad. Um, you're 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 signaling that either you're a drunk or or you're out of love with your husband or you want to go home. Um, you're that that's that's the name you're objecting if you're sloppy, if your nails aren't done. Um, and it seems, you know, it, it seems ancient and almost unbelievable. Um, but it, it's, it's the world these women lived in. 
Yeah, and it's just another, maybe it's a coincidence, maybe not, when you just had your first vision of a Barbie doll and you were asking, how does the Barbie doll get to New York with a Vietnamese outfit on? It provides an amazing, symbolic, and imagistic thing for your book to then look at how women were in that age. Because they were, yes, they were unlike Barbie and like Barbie at the same time. Yeah, and it's funny because um, when Trisha first sees this Barbie doll and she she imagines it's the first one she ever saw. This again, this is nineteen sixty three, and she was only twenty three and she didn't have any kids of her own. So she sees this little girl Rainy holding this Barbie doll, and what she loves about it. When Rainy shows her all the little outfits, um, Trisha's dolls, again, came of age in the 50s, were all baby dolls. And so she sees the Barbie doll. In some ways, it's a, it's a counter argument to the way we see Barbie in 2023 as, you know, this bubblehead, um, all pink. You know, that was the later, <laughs> that was the later iteration of Barbie. Um, but, but in those years, it was a doll who said, who told the kids who played with it, look at all the other things you can be other than a mother pushing a stroller with a baby that, that wets, you know, <laughs> rather than just change diapers. Um, you can play with a doll who, who is a career girl is a Southern Belle, which I love. I mean, there actually was an outfit named Southern Belle in the original Barbie catalog, um, you know, who, who's on campus, who goes to college. This was freeing. Um, this wasn't just, you know, be a big breasted airhead. This was, your life could be fast. These are all the things you can do. So Trisha sort of is enchanted by this Barbie who's kind of an adult. This is a doll who's saying to girls, um, you know, life as an adult is going to be much more interesting than just being a mother changing diapers. That's really news to Trisha and to her generation of women. So let's redeem Barbie from the <laughs> from her bad rap as, as, as just stupid. <laughs> the original Barbie wasn't just stupid. She was interesting. She was professional. <laughs> have you seen the movie? I have not seen the movie yet, I must confess. Um, I'm almost afraid to see it because everybody I know and some very surprising people have loved it so much. Um, I, I told my daughter, we, who's 35, we were going to go together. And she said, no, I don't want to go with you because you'll take it apart. <laughs> you know? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> A basic tenet of this book, I think, is this interesting push and pull between the idea of doing good for others. You know, Charlene, there's, mm -hmm. there's moments where Charlene is just arguing whether they're going to sell these Barbie clothes to other people for $5 that Lily makes and take advantage of her hard work to make money to donate to hospitals to do some good. And there's some arguments in there where other women are like, like, that's not enough. Look what this country needs. It needs more than that. And she's like, well, it's worth some small goods. Like we have to do what we can. And she advanced to going to this leprosarium to help people with leprosy and bring them so soft clothing. Um, uh -huh. to to some other acts later which um have questionable consequences so i i i uh -huh. i was left really thinking about um this term of inconsequential good which again reminds me a little bit of karma because there's ripple effects maybe when you do good for one person right. it hurts another and that was at the heart of the book for me so wanted to ask you yes. about all the things you were thinking about with small good acts and, and, and the consequences. Right. Yeah. Um, and again, the, the, you know, the very notion in a, in a very small behind the scenes, so to speak way also reflects the complicated politics of the time. Um, and, you know, when I realized that, that I was, um, I was going to be dealing with Vietnam at this moment, this, you know, before everything went to hell, or at least before America was aware of um, what we were up to. 
um, that that there is a reflection of um, that 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 sense that best intentions um, and and yeah and as you say and um, that the whole all the implications of so-called selflessness um, that I'm not doing this for me I'm doing it for you <laughs> you know um, and in my efforts to do it for you I may be harming someone else um, or um, even just self-sacrifice I'm giving up my own life for this greater cause. Um, but how many people am I hurting by giving up my own life? Um, what am I taking away um, from so many others? So um, it is a kind of um, writ very small because these are women's lives. These are the, the women on the periphery who are not making the big things happen. But it's very much reflective of the big things that were happening. And, um, you know, and it's it's that the complication of the human condition you know, um, if I can say such hyperbolic words about my own work. Um, uh, but this is what they were wrestling with. Uh, and, and what's the value? What's the value of one life compared to another? Um, and, and so I, I was very aware um, that I did not want to um, take the easy side politically um, in looking at this time and place, um, that it's, it's, yeah, so many things went wrong and we were on the edge, uh, and, and there were so many places, even in 1963, where we could have pulled back, we could have changed, we could have changed what was coming and what happened. Um, and it might've been a very different history, um, between that time and the fall of Saigon in 75. Um, and I didn't want that kind of judgmental um, presentism to influence these women as they're looking back on their own lives. You know, um, I wanted to give them the opportunity to say, but you have to understand what we thought we were doing. Um, I didn't want to judge them. I think that the, it's a real risk when you're writing fiction any kind of historical fiction, but even one that looks back at a time um, that we have declared as a culture was a terrible mistake <laughs> and a tragedy um, and, and stupid in many ways. And in 2023, I know that and I can trace all the mistakes that were made. But at, in 1963, no one knew that. No one knew that with any certainty. Um, and so it's very... I think we have to be very careful when we're making up stories um, that that we we don't point fingers, but make the effort to understand people in their circumstances, in their time and place. Um, so that's a sort of convoluted way of, of saying, um, I wanted these women to be able to make a case for themselves, even when they knew the outcome um, of what they did then was not what they had intended. So I was curious about, you know, your title, Absolution, which isn't, I don't think the word absolution came up in the text. Yeah, the, uh, it, it's used as a verb, I, I think, just once. Um, uh, and, and Trisha sort of absolves herself um, as, a, as a young woman. Um, she's, she's dragged by another Charlene-type character um, as a college student. Um, to, to go to Birmingham um, and um, work for civil rights. Um, and she sort of gets excused from going. She's not quite sure that she really wants to go, but she's been swept up uh, by a more powerful force, another young woman who's determined. Um, and, and she sort of gets excused. No, you have to go back and take care of your father. He, he loves you and you're the only thing he has. And it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, um, yes, I do. That's, he really is my first obligation. Um, again, that's that whole question of self-sacrifice. Who does it hurt and who does it help? Um, and that's the only time, um, she sort of, she says she feels absolved. She, gets out of doing major big things in the world um, and just taking care of a single person who loves her. Um, but yeah, but, but there is that, you know, why do we confess? What, why do we, um, you know, why do we have such an exchange? Why do we ever say, I've never told anybody this, but I'm telling you now. Um, 
why does that happen? And it seems to me that inherent in that is because I want you to understand me. I want you to see where I was coming from. <laughs> um, and I want to both absolve myself and to have you, listener, absolve me. Um, so, and again, I think this, this uh, the title also sort of was always in my mind in because we're looking at it, time in history that we have so firmly decided who was right and who was wrong, um, who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. Um, and, and it seems to me in all kinds of ways in the current moment, um, we are so, um, determined not to forgive anyone for a past that we deem, um, irredeemable. Um, and, and, and maybe this is the, this is the influence of when I was writing this novel, not just, um, when the novel takes place. Um, uh, you know, we need to absolve, um, that we, we need regret is, um, inherent in any life as, as both characters say, um, but but so is the need for absolution, um, the things we can't change, um, the things that seemed right at the time or good at the time and proved not to be. Um, but it's it's too easy for the present to shake a fist at mistakes um, that that were made. Um, the, the the novel is full of um, sort of twinning. There, there's two characters that, you know, Charlene, uh, Trisha keeps talking about Charlene kind of joins her at her hip. Charlene herself literally has twins. Um, every character has another side. There's, there's the two young men, Dominic, the, the young CEO who works as a medic and the doctor, uh, the Southern doctor who accompanies Charlene around. They're the two women talking to each other. I mean, there's just two, two all over the place. Um, and and it struck me, and this is why I I finally decided on the title. Um, it's it struck me that in any absolution, it's always two. Um, the the Latin root for absolution um, is to set free, and um, the the notion of to set free always implies someone who is doing the setting free and someone who is set free. Um, and, and so I think, you know, absolution always involves, it has to be at least two people. It has to be the one who absolves and the one who asks for absolution. So that seemed at the heart of, of even the way the story is told. Yeah. I was thinking about that in the terms of, because someone does have to sort of grant it to you that inherent in that idea is the idea of being seen, of being seen yes. by another person, which is so much about what these women weren't seen by their husbands, yes. by Graham mm-hmm. Greene, that tied up in absolution, which has like a higher religious maybe function or connotation mm-hmm. for the word that's maybe more outward, more ethereal is also a very deep inner spiritual, I mean, almost like almost basic need on Maslow's triangle of being seen. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, and, and that's, and that's very much, I guess, you know, in the, in my faith world and, and, when I say that, I mean not Catholicism, but faith in literature and faith in the value of art. Um, that's what art does. Art cannot deal in generalities. You know, a, a novel doesn't say, um, you know, here's a guy who's like everybody else and he's going to tick all the boxes of what you think. It's like, okay, there may be everybody else, but here's this guy. Here's this specific person. Here is this person's singular experience, um, the singular detail of anyone's life. Um, that's what art and literature does. Um, it's, you can't generalize. There's no, it's, it's the thing itself 
um, as you say, yes, absolutely. The the seeing of the individual who, once you've seen him or her or it or the place um, or the circumstances, um, there are no generalizations that apply. It's always, yeah, but this person's, here's this person's experience in this particular time and place in the granular daily life that made them who they are. And I mean, that's what we, that's what we go to art for. I think to, to be reminded of that, to, to know what it is to be seen. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that influences you as a writer? Um, this might be a little tough, but... but <laughs> um, I, I've, I've been thinking about this passage. I, I reread uh, Bleak House, Charles Dickens' big doorstopper novel again this summer. And I don't know how many times I've read it. Again, probably it, I first read it about the same time I was reading Graham Greene for the first time. And I've taught it. Um, uh, and it's just, it's just a wonderful Dickensian, uh, huge uh, panorama Um but when I read it this this summer, I came across this paragraph, um, and I just I, I know I've come across it a million times, and suddenly I saw it anew, and it just I just admired it so much. Um, I, I, I can't give the whole context of the novel, but Sir Lester Dedlock is um, is in many ways at the heart of the novel. He's a very Dickensian, um, wealthy. Um, lo- Londoner, his um, the, the seat of his his family home is Chesney Wold. Um, you know, very. In some ways, it struck me this time. He's very. He's also a very Trumpian <laughs> figure. Um, you know, we're we're not invited to like him. He's distant and and um, he's in his um, you know in his golden palace. He doesn't really much care for his subjects being of um, you know of proper blood in in England at this time. And he's married to Lady Dedlock, who is very Melania-ish. <laughs> you know, she's beautiful and cold. Um, and the heart of the novel is that that she has a, a, a scandalous secret. Um, and at this point in the novel, um, the detective has just let Lester Dedlock know um, that scandal um, a tremendous scandal is about to take her down and take down his household. Um, and again, this is not a character who, who through the novel, um, you feel warmly towards. Um, but then this scene happens and, um, he, so Sir Lester has just realized everything's falling apart. The detective has just left Sir Lester left alone, remains in the same attitude as though he were still listening and his attention were still occupied. At length, he gazes round the empty room and finding it deserted, rises unsteadily to his feet, pushes back his chair and walks a few steps, supporting himself by the table. Then he stops and with more of those inarticulate sounds, lifts up his eyes and seems to stare at something. Heaven knows what he sees. The green, green woods of Chesney Wald, the noble house, the pictures of his forefathers, strangers defacing them, officers of police coarsely handling his most precious heirlooms, thousands of fingers pointing at him, thousands of faces sneering at him. But if such shadows flit before him to his bewilderment, there is one other shadow which he can name with something like distinctness even yet, and to which alone he addresses his tearing of his white hair and his extended arms. It is she, in association with whom, saving that she has been for years a main fiber of the root of his dignity and pride, he has never had a selfish thought. It is she whom he has loved, admired, honored, and set up for the world to respect. It is she who, at the core of all the constrained formalities and conventionalities of his life, has been a stock of living tenderness, 
and love. When I came upon that again, and I know I've come upon, I know I've, I've read it. It, it was so sweet and compassionate and, and to say, oh my gosh, this character who's, who's been mocked and, and set on high, I'm feeling, oh my God, he loved her. And she's a, you know, she's a cold, horrible person <laughs> and, and yet fully worthy of his love. This, you know, the only tenderness in his life um, that he thinks of her with such compassion. And I did have this moment, oh my gosh, I feel sorry. You know, Trump might actually love Melania. <laughs> you know? and, I, and I should see that in him. He's capable of that. It's it's just this wonderful thing that Dickens and the best writers can do, you know, um, all the things that you were certain, I know that guy and I don't like him. And then you get you stumble across a paragraph like that and you and you look at them with some kind of compassion. Um, that's miraculous. That's that's the that's what art can do. I'm feeling sorry for Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Can you read something you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you liked? Yeah, so this is, um, maybe this is something we, we haven't quite yet touched on in talking about absolution, but um, it's the first thing that came to mind um, in regard to your question. Um, th th there is a moment uh, in the novel, there's another character who enters the novel um, and enters Trisha and Charlene's life um, when they go to the leprosarium. Um, and that is another doctor out to do good, but who um, is disquieting in many ways uh, to the women and seems to mock their own small efforts at inconsequential good. Um, and, um, and, and Trisha almost is not sure. She finds him appealing. She finds him sexy, but she also finds him frightening. And, and she sort of has this notion that he might be, he might be a saint or he might be Satan himself. Um, and, you know, because I'm dealing with, with Catholic characters at this point with great faith and what they were doing, um, you know, I wanted to just, just a little modicum of superstition. Um, the same people who believe that, um, Mary, the mother of God, um, actually appeared in Portugal to say, you got to get rid of the communist, um, you know, who really believed that really happened. Um, how do I, um, just give a, a little, you know, touch of the hat to people who really believe that the devil might appear out of the jungle, um, into a leprosarium in Vietnam in 1963. So after the, um, Trisha's confrontation, um, this, this very brief, uh, passage. And I also wanted, um, Trisha's mother, uh, dies when she's 17 and she doesn't really seem to have, she, she talks about her father a lot and her obligation, but her mother didn't really get much, um, much attention. So I also wanted to give the mother just to, you know, don't do the same thing again. You know, there's so many dead mothers in fiction, you know, it's so easy to get rid of her. You're not writing Portnoy's complaint. You don't need a mother, you know. So this is just a very, very brief um, tip of the hat to the existence of Satan and also the personality of Trisha's mother. Um, she says, my mother was an information operator at what we still refer to in those days as the telephone exchange on 50th Street in Manhattan. She worked the night shift, leaving the house every afternoon as soon as my father and I were home from school, our dinner already made, waiting to be reheated and returning in the early hours of the next day. She was always there at breakfast with our lunches packed, the house clean, a funny story to tell about the night before. The crazy phone numbers people sought, the drunken confessions, even the, quote, dirty talk that she always met with an indignant, you are no gentleman, sir. There were recurring characters in her tales, a crooning hobo, a hapless out-of-town businessman, a weary streetwalker, a lonely cop, even a guy at Rikers Island who always wanted the number for the mayor's bedroom at Gracie Mansion. And on full moon nights, she told us, Satan himself often called from a payphone on some cold, 
blue-shaded street deep in the stony caverns of Manhattan. My mother said she knew it was the devil by the sugary, sibilant way he always began. I once had this number by heart, but it somehow slipped away. And by the chill in her spine after she had given him the number he sought, always with two digits transposed. Um, very brief, it's the only glimpse we get of Trisha's mother, um, but it brings to the novel the full faith that, um, that we are on earth <laughs> with, um, with saints and sinners, um, and, and, and Satan is, um, is a reality. Evil is a reality. Um, so I wasn't quite sure how ever to negotiate that. Um, and, and, and I realized um, afterwards, just like women wearing stockings <laughs> to garden parties in Saigon when it was 100 degrees, um, there'll be a whole bunch of readers who've never heard of an information operator and can't believe there was ever a time when you needed a telephone number, you had to call the information operator. So even that is an antique past. <laughs> Where do you write? Right here. Uh, this is my office. Um, pretty much always at the same desk. Um, although uh, I do find it helpful um, every once in a while to go someplace else entirely where I'm not surrounded by uh, obligation and, and books I love. <laughs> what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I guess I never really think about um, getting away from it. Um, uh, as, as you pointed out, I seem to take it to, to cocktail parties with me, <laughs> even if I think um, I'm, I've left it behind. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? That's become a very small, a, a, a small cohort. Um, when I'm pretty sure uh, the work is is as complete as I can make it, um, I send it to my agent and to my editor. Um, I don't show it to anyone else before that. And how have you dealt with rejection? <laughs> I remember my answer last time you asked me that question. <laughs> um, and, it, and it involved a four-letter word that I, I'm, I'm trying to get out of my vocabulary. <laughs> um, uh, you know, boy, I think um, um, I'm, I'm expecting it. You know, I, I ju it's, just part of the, it's just part of the job now. Um, I, I roll with it these days. <laughs> and what is your favorite word? I, I just gave a talk up at um, at, at Boston College in 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 the uh, in in the course of developing the course. Um, I realized I was talking about all the beautiful words in the Gospels, um, but I realized my favorite is consider um, consider the lilies of the field. Um, I think those of us who write the novels and uh, short stories. Um, that's kind of the, the word we begin with. We're asking, we invite readers, consider this. Um, it's kind of a beautiful word and maybe one we don't use often enough. Um, not you're, I'm right, you're wrong, but could you please consider? It's a soft and, and gentle invitation. It's a wonderful word, consider. Thank you so much for talking to me again. I'm so appreciative. Thank you. If you like today's show with Alice McDermott, author of the novel Absolution, You're in Luck, check out my three previous interviews with her on her craft book, What About the Baby, and her novels Someone and the Ninth Hour. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 430 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. 
join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Buzzy Jackson, Michael Cunningham, and Paul Harding. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.